0: Welcome to the Joseph Carlson Show. We have an exciting show today. Unemployment rate fell 13.3% in May. This is a really big jobs report. We're gonna be looking at that a little bit. My portfolio has briefly at least crossed the 100,000 mark, so this is a pretty big landmark. It's made a lot up in the past month. So we're gonna take a look at, in the past 30 days, what parts of my portfolio have performed the best. And then we have this website, Robintrack. Robintrack Robintrack.net is what it's called. And we're going to be looking at what the top 10 holdings are on Robinhood. These are the 10 most popular holdings on Robinhood. I'm going to be going through each of them and giving my opinion on those particular companies. And then of course, we have lots of emails and good questions to get to. Now, first of all, let's jump into this jobs report because it's very exciting news. The difference between where reality is, what the actual jobs report is, and what the analysts and what the economists were predicting are so far apart. They're in different stratospheres from each other. So... This is what we're seeing right now. Unemployment stunningly rose by 2.5 million in May as the jobless rate declined to 13.3%. It says that this is far better than economists had been expecting and an indication the economic turnaround could be close at hand. So let me get this straight. The unemployment rate is 13.3%. 13.3. We had talks of it being 20%, 30%. There was lots of people saying it's going to be around 20, 25, 30%. 13.3% is way better. It says here, economists surveyed by the Dow Jones had been expecting payrolls to drop by 8.33 million. So instead of gaining 2.5 million, they were expecting a drop of 8.33 million and the unemployment rate to rise by 19.5% from April's 14.7. If Wall Street's expectations had been accurate, it would have been the worst figure since the Great Depression. This showed that their predictions were inaccurate, very inaccurate. They predicted 8.33 million loss. We had a 2.5 million gain. So they predicted wrongly in the wrong direction by quite a bit. Um, Now, I'm not really blaming the economists and people for predicting it this way. This is a once in a really in a lifetime type of event. And so it's really difficult to predict something when you don't have a robust history to base it on. But that's part of the reason why I outlined the three different scenarios is I think that there is a scenario where the recovery is much faster than we think. It comes back much quicker than we think. I gave it a 10 to 20% chance that things recover a little bit better than what the analysts expect. And I think we could see part of that playing out. The 60% chance of, you know, just a really slow recovery. But this jobs report is really huge. And we could see it leaning more to the direction of a quicker recovery. Now we can dive into the type of jobs that are being recovered. It says leisure and hospitality workers made up Almost half of the increase last month, with 1.2 million going back to work after reported losses of 7.5 million in April. Jobs in bars and restaurants increased by 1.4 million as states began to relax social distancing measures. Construction was the next biggest gainer, with 464,000 making up for about half of April's losses. Education and health services rose by 424,000, and retail surged by 368,000 after plunging 2.3 million in months previous. So there's job gains all over the place. All the sectors that were really hit are now hiring back. Eric, the senior economist at Alliance Bernstein said, quote, It appears that businesses begin rehiring workers earlier in a greater number than expected, a trend that is likely to continue as lockdown eases around the country. The Wall Street Journal also reports that there's a number of businesses that are wanting to reopen, but they're, They're withholding right now because of the riots going on. One example it gives is Penn Quarter Sports Tavern in Washington, D.C., laid off all 28 employees in early March after city leaders ordered non-essential businesses to close during the pandemic. When the city began the first phase of reopening last month, the restaurant rehired about half of its employees in hopes of reopening the bar this week, said the owner, Mike Brand. But protests and looting prompted him to board up his business, And delay the opening by at least a week. We had every intention to be operating right now, but we're back stuck in the mud. Mike Brand said, this extra week, maybe two with the riots, is taking a huge financial chunk. So hopefully this means that in the future, there's more businesses like this that will be reopening really quickly. The hope is the looting and rioting completely stops. The protests continue to go on all about racial equality. Hopefully that continues. But the looting and and taking people's businesses that stops, this is also going to help the economy, more people are going to be hired back, these businesses will be able to operate, they won't be taking this huge financial hit that they're already strained for. So that's more good news. If this type of thing stops, which I do think the rioting will stop quickly is my assumption, I don't think it will go on for too long. Uh, I do think this will be a positive thing for the jobs report going forward. But overall, this is great news. Having people go back to work is absolutely great news. It sent the stock market up 2.65%. But even if it didn't, having people go back to work and be able to have jobs is a great thing. So this is really positive news. I like seeing it. Uh, I just want to highlight, though, the difference between what people were predicting again and what the results were. I know I went over this before, but I want to highlight this again. They predicted 19.5% unemployment rate Right now, That was a prediction. A decline of 8.3 million jobs. We gained 2.5 million and have an unemployment rate of 13.3%. Now do we understand why Howard Marks says he doesn't pay attention to economic forecasting? He doesn't think it's valuable. They can't get the predictions right, at least reliably. And if they can't get it right reliably, you can't make bets based off of it. So this is the difference. They're in different stratospheres between what the economists were predicting, and what reality is. So I look at this on a basis of probability. I look at the different possible scenarios. I knew that the market returning back a little bit quicker than expected is a possible scenario, and we could be seeing that play out right now. So in my portfolio, with all this news going on, with all the gains of the previous week, we just crept across the 100,000 mark. So I might not be able to hold until close. Maybe we'll close a little bit under it. But regardless, getting this above 100000 is a big landmark. And this isn't from just deposits between now and the last week. If I go on the previous week, I was at 94000 That was the last episode. We've gained $6,000 in the past week. So it's just been a crazy market over the past five days. But uh, I plan on staying invested, even if the market was going down right now, even if the economic news wasn't as good in that type of environment, I would still be holding my portfolio. I'd probably just be in the red right now. But regardless, this good news has led to quite a bit of gains over the past month. Let's go ahead and look at what sectors of my portfolio have done really well over the past 30 days. So I'll go ahead and filter by the one month view here. This is like the trailing 30 days of my portfolio. We're up $10,000 in the past 30 days. That's pretty good. Let's go ahead and look at what sectors really made the biggest comeback, the biggest gains, First of all, you'll notice a trend here. It'll be the ones that were the most beat up. So real estate is up 31%. I'm up $4,000 just with my real estate holdings. This was the, the sector that nobody wanted to own like two months ago. It was the death of real estate. Everything was closed. Nobody was going to go to malls anymore. You know, nobody was going to go shopping anymore. Nobody wanted to own these businesses. Now I'm up 31% in 30 days. So I'm gaining 1% a day in real estate. If we look at that, these are all of the, the same holdings I've had. Realty Income Corp, Store Capital, LTC, Well Tower, and Simon Property. I'm still bullish on all of these. I think they have a great future, but they have made back a lot of the losses we had in March. Next up, we have consumer, pretty moderate gains, 11.59%. I'm up $1,500 on that. And then we have healthcare, which went up 2.38% barely moved at all. Why did healthcare not move at all in the past 30 days? Well, because it really didn't go down that much. This is why I like value investing. If you look for the sectors that were really beat up, the ones that dropped, the ones that nobody wanted to own at the time, those are where most of the gains were. Over the past 30 days, that's where all the money was made. In healthcare, a sector that was considered very safe, I bought some shares of Johnson & Johnson and Merck within the buying of the past 3 months, and they haven't really moved a whole lot. They've been safer, so to speak. But like Warren Buffett says, you pay a high price for safety. If you want to buy really safe companies, everybody knows they're safe, and typically they're a higher price. So we have healthcare. I made 300 bucks on that. Finance, this is a lot of banks. This is, again, another sector nobody wanted to own a month ago. This was the banks, and as businesses go out of business and the economy collapses, the last thing you want to own is a bank that's been lending out to everybody. But this is up 23%. I'm up $2,500 with my financial holdings. So... Again, the sectors that were beat up are the ones that have been returning. We have tech up 7.1%. Tech seems to be always the, uh, the, the exception. It seems to go up regardless of any type of environment. Microsoft, Apple, and Visa, they're just like companies you buy at any point and they seem to go up. Uh, my bonds are just sitting pretty flat. They're down 2.23%. These are a hedge. If we did have the other side, if we did have the actual predictions, these bonds would come in really handy. They would have gone up in value quite a bit if we did have like 19 or 20% unemployment rate. The bonds would have gone up in value. I could have sold out of these bonds and put that into the rest of my portfolio. I used to have 20% allocated to bonds, not 10%, but I sold off 10% of my bonds. I sold off half of them and put that in my portfolio. So the bonds are sitting there as a hedge. Hopefully, I don't have to use them. Hopefully, I can just sit them there and, and wait in case the economy has another downturn. But that's where they're at right now. I have $9,000 in bonds. Utilities is up 9.97%. Pretty good, above average. We have telecom, 7.74%. Pretty good, not bad. Uh, and then we have industrials up 13.6%. That's really good. And then we have the energy sector. My oil company is up 13%. But they have been down so much ever since buying them that having this gain isn't too crazy. So overall, that leads us to a total gain of $10,807 over the past 30 days. Most of that has been market gains, but I've also earned $507 in dividends in the past 30 days. That's a lot higher than average. On average, I earn about $300, somewhere around there in dividends, which is pretty good. If I go and I extrapolate out and I look forward an entire year, I earn about $3,500 a year in dividends right now. If I didn't reinvest, if I didn't put any new money in, that's just how much money my portfolio would be paying me. And the way that I look at this is, if I were to just start a new portfolio, if I had no money, and I was just to start a new one, just this portfolio in and of itself could fund it at a rate of $300 a month. That's pretty incredible that I've built this accumulated advantage in my my investments that allow me to grow my investments quicker. You're seeing that compounding work out real time. Every single week, I'm earning dividends. Every single month, I'm earning dividends my portfolio so far has earned 3,500 and that's picking up really quickly. So all these factors are working really well together. I think the portfolio is really positioned well for the future. If you want to look at any of these sectors and see the holdings that I have in them, uh, you can do that real easy. You go into the description of the video you're watching. There's a link called my portfolio. You click on that and it opens up and shows you every single holding I have and the allocation to every one of them. You can look at that if you're interested. I'm going to be looking over the weekend and seeing what companies I want to make purchases of. So I'll be keeping you up to date when I start buying companies again. I do think within this type of portfolio, there's no such thing as not having any good deals with any of these companies. I think there are some that are still good deals. So I'm going to be going over all of them this weekend and really trying to find out what companies I think still offer the best value. Now moving on, I wanted to go into this website called robintrack.net. It has analytics on Robinhood user behavior, really what companies they're buying, and how many of them hold these companies at different periods of time. So we're going to look at the top 10 holdings of it. There was a member on my Discord channel that shared this with me. So we went through and discussed a lot of the different holdings. I thought it was a pretty interesting discussion. And I'll just go ahead and plug that Discord here. If you join the Patreon, you can get access to the Discord. Plus I have some other things in the work that you'll be able to have access to. So it's $6 a month. One thing that I've had some confusion on with this is you do not get billed $6 right when you join. That's not what happens. You only get billed $6 at the first or second of the month. I believe it's right at the start of the month. So if you join right now, like mid month, You're going to have it for free, and then you're going to be billed for the first time at the beginning of the month. And if you don't like it or whatever, you can leave before then, and then you're not billed anything. So you can check that out. Just wanted to clarify that because I've had some people think that they're going to have to pay $6 the day they join. That's not how it works. But anyway, if you join that, you get access to the Discord and everything else I plan on coming out with. But going back to this, we have Apple here as number 10 most owned stock on Robinhood. So the 10th most owned stock on Robinhood. Right now, there's 387,000 users on Robinhood that own at least one share of Apple. So this has gone up dramatically. Apple obviously is a great company. No problem with Robinhood users owning Apple. I think it's a smart buy pretty much at any price right now. I think the company just has a generally speaking great future. So I like the buy with Apple. It's one of the three companies I own in the tech sector. I own Apple, Microsoft, and Visa. But anyway, if we look at when they bought it, I also think Robinhood users bought this at a good time. As it was going down in value, more users purchased it, and a lot of them got pretty good deal on it because if they bought it right around here, which many users did, they all made money. The ones that are still like maybe slightly in the green but not quite as much are the ones that bought it late to the game after it had already recovered a lot. So that's number 10. I have no real issues with this one. Number nine is Microsoft, another great holding. One thing I forgot to mention is the key... The pink line is the price, so that's the share price, and then the green line is the number of users holding the stock currently. So right now, where I have it, it's around 203,000. Currently, there's 452,000 users holding Microsoft. So a lot of people have been buying into Microsoft recently. If we look at the line of when they bought, there is some fear of missing out here. It was going up in share price, and a lot of people started buying right here, and all of them are probably in the red, at least the ones that purchased right here. All these shares are still in the red, but... For the most part, everybody that owned the stock right here and bought in, they're all in the green on their shares. And then it follows almost the same trend as Apple. So again, this is another holding I think is great. Microsoft is a great company. Most of this does look like more users are buying it simply because the stock price dropped. So that's the trend that we start to see here. And then at number eight, we have Carnival Cruise Line. This is where we get into what I think are the uh, the more value plays. Robinhood users are just wanting to buy companies that have simply dropped in price Without real regard of the underlying asset, what they're really buying, Microsoft and Apple are both extremely good, scalable companies with predictable cash flow. Carnival Cruise Line is just the opposite. It's a company where they have a handful of depreciating assets that are floating in the water. You know, They have a lot of liabilities, and they're trying to get things going. So This is a little bit more of a risky bet, but it's pretty clear here. Right now, there are 470,000 Robinhood users holding this company. At least some portion of it if we look at it the trend is very clear Robinhood users started buying this aggressively as soon as it went down in price as soon as it dropped down in price people started to pile on it and that's where we're at right now in terms of the company i don't think it's the worst play i think that eventually carnival cruise line will come up in value but i don't think it will be as quick as some people think they might have to hold on to this for five plus years and i don't know if they're patient enough to do that if they want a quick turnaround But I do think that over time, Carnival Cruise Line is still going to be a thing. People are still going to go on cruises. I don't think human behavior is going to be changed quite as much as people think. So I rate this one a decent buy. Highly volatile, but still not a terrible buy. At number seven, we have ACB Aurora Cannabis. I know it says number eight there, but it's a typo. I just checked the list. It is number seven. Uh, This is a company where I don't think the graph shows the stock splits, because ever since about March, April 2019, the company has gone down in value incredibly. And it hasn't spiked up nearly close to what it is. So if I bring up the real graph here, this is what it looks like. Ever since March of 2019, it's down 87%. So everybody that's been investing along this journey has lost a lot of money, most of it that they've invested. But looking at this, you see that over this time period, more and more Robinhood users are pouring onto this because the share price continues to get cheaper and cheaper. It's almost like something if you can just get a lot of shares. It just makes it feel like a better purchase. Look, I'm putting in $100 and I'm getting 50 shares. Look at my share count. I don't know. That's just an idea. That's something that I don't see on M1 Finance because it doesn't really even show you the share count. You just buy with fractional shares. So the dollar amount you put in is what you buy. But this is something where it's perplexing to me. This company has gone down in value continually, yet the amount of Robinhood users buying it seems to increase over and over again. If we look at it recently in the past month, if you timed it correctly and bought right in May 13th of this year, you're up 145%. So if you have the magic timing there, you made a lot of money with it. But if you timed it pretty much anywhere else in the past year, you've lost a lot of money. So I don't think that this is a good holding. It's not a company I would ever have in my portfolio. I think there's too many risk factors in it. And I don't know why investors are piling onto it. At number six, the most purchased company on Robinhood in the sixth place is GoPro. A total of 476,000 users, 479, 479,000 users on Robinhood currently own some of this company. I don't know why. This is one I don't understand. What is the appeal of owning GoPro? What have they been doing that's relevant? This has been one of the biggest duds in the stock market since it's been listed. Look at the graph here. It IPO'd, it shot up because of the excitement of it. And then when people realize that it's not innovating, that it was mostly a trend company with these portable cameras. And a lot of companies came out with similar devices at cheaper price points. And then they had the drone market that they botched that as well. They didn't come out with any drones. It just has been down and hasn't done anything since then. I don't see at all the appeal of owning GoPro. I don't get why people are piling onto this stock. Is there some product I'm missing? Some direction they're going? When I look at their website, I see the same old product that they have, the Hero 8 Black. That's what they're that's what they have featured on their website here. This looks just like the same type of camera they've had for the past five years. If I scroll down, it's the same thing. This market for you know these type of cameras is limited. There's not that many people that need to have them. Most of the people that want to own them already own them. So unless they do something completely different than what they're doing right now, I don't understand why so many Robinhood users are buying it other than the fact that the price has fallen. That seems to be the only thing. So I'm still noticing this trend that, Regardless of what the company actually is, a lot of people seem to just buy it if the share price goes down. That's good to do when you believe that the future is bright for the company you're buying and that the share price going down represents a good entry point for a really solid company. But I don't see that in the case of GoPro. Now, number five and number four, I'm going to group together because they're both airlines. Number five is Delta Airlines. Number four is American Airlines. Um, This one, there's what? almost 600,000. There's 586,000 Robinhood users holding American Airlines. So it's a lot of users. Both of these follow the same trend. The airlines were doing their thing. The stock was okay before then. And then we had the pandemic. We had an 80% plus reduction in air travel. The stock price went down because these companies clearly didn't have the cash to get through this downturn. So they're receiving government bailouts. And with the stock price crashing, Robinhood users piled onto it. Now there's 500,000 plus users holding this company. My thoughts on these two companies, uh, I don't think it's the worst bet. I think that air travel will resume eventually. I would be a little bit nervous betting directly against Warren Buffett. He sold out of all of his airlines completely. And typically, people say, well, he doesn't understand technology companies. That's why he makes a bad decision with those this isn't a technology company. These are airlines. These are right in the type of industry that Warren Buffett has been really successful at understanding. So him selling out of it is not a vote of confidence. I think that that's a pretty telling thing right there. That would make me a little bit nervous. But I generally outside of that think that it's an okay bet. I would still feel okay owning these airlines. I assume over the next five years, we'll probably start to see more air travel and things recover. So I do like these companies to some degree, even though I think they're a little too risky for me to jump into. And then in number three, we have Disney. This is one of my favorite companies. I'm not going to give anybody a hard time, especially Robinhood users, for buying shares of Disney. I think that they're buying a good company at a really reduced price because of a unique and temporary issue that they're facing. The coronavirus is not going to last forever. It's not going to last forever. It eventually won't be such a big deal. I really believe that in three or four years, there will be new news the coronavirus will be a thing that we reference as a past a crazy time that we look back on so that's what i hope anyways if that's not the case disney's probably not a good buy if if they can never open back up their parts but i strongly believe that we'll eventually move on to other things so uh, as we're facing this you can see the share price drop down a lot i think the investors that bought during this time you can see a lot of them piled on when this went down in price i think they got a really good deal When it was selling in the 80s, in the 90s, even in the low 100s, I think they got a really good deal doing that. Uh, Disney's streaming service, I'm pretty bullish on. I think it's going to do really well. And generally speaking, I think it's a well-managed company that's done really well over the past 10 years with its operations and hasn't been rewarded enough with its share price. So I'm pretty bullish on this holding. In number two, we have GE General Electric. This is one where just recently, a lot of Robinhood users have bought into it. Now there's almost 784,000 Robinhood users holding a portion of this company. General Electric is one that at least for the last like three years, I really have not liked this company. I don't know what they've been doing recently. I'd have to do some homework on it, but uh, I haven't liked the company. Generally speaking, the reason that I don't have a lot of industrials, I only have 4% in industrials, is because a lot of these industrial companies... They have different things going on. Like look at Boeing. That's a big company. It has a whole supply chain. It's kind of a whole economy in and of itself. And it's really hard to give good analysis on what's going on with these companies. The same thing with 3M, very difficult company to see really how it's doing. I see the same thing with GE. It's one of these big industrial companies, very hard to do analysis on. I'm not good at figuring out the business plan of these companies, whether they're going to excel in them. And I don't have a lot of confidence putting too much money in them which is part of the reason why most of my industrial invested money are in companies that are like waste management. You know, they pick up trash. That's a really simple business plan. I can figure out what they're doing, and I like the business. And Union Pacific, a railroad, again, another really simple business plan. They move things from one point to another. Really basic business. They're almost like utility companies. So I feel more comfortable investing in those really predictable businesses rather than companies like GE Even 3M, which is one of my holdings, I've been deciding whether I want to keep it or not. I'm getting close to selling out of it, but GE is not one that I would invest in. It's not one that I'm interested in. The number one most held company on Robinhood is Ford, ticker symbol F, Ford Motors. It currently has around 875,000 users holding a portion of this company. I'm not sure why. I think that this might be one of the ones that they hand out for free, like if you refer people they hand out a lot of Ford Motor shares because they're trading at like six dollars a share. So, you know, you can get a stock of up to a thousand dollars, fifteen hundred dollars in value, but you end up with the share of Ford that's worth like six bucks. I think that's what happens a lot. And maybe users are just piling onto it, but I don't see why. I don't see anything particularly attractive about this stock. I don't see what is attracting so many investors to it. Car companies in general are really difficult. They have a lot of competition, they have thinner margins. They're a whole assembly line of things that need to be manufactured. It's a a pretty difficult business. Ford is one that has really struggled, and I don't really see anything appealing about it. So this isn't one that I would hold in my portfolio. I think that it's going to continue to struggle. If I was to invest in any car company right now, it'd probably be Tesla. It's the only one that seems interesting to me. They're changing so many things. The business model is completely I don't have much interest in Ford, and I don't know why so many investors in Robinhood are piling onto it. If I was to make a guess, I think a lot of it has to do with the really cheap share prices. Having it $6 a share, I think it makes it easy to just put $100 in it and buy a handful of shares. So that would be my assumption. I can't think of too many other reasons. So there you have it. That is my review of the top 10 most held companies on Robinhood. I would give it maybe a 5 out of 10. I obviously like Apple a lot. I like Microsoft. I think Carnival Cruise Line is a, a decent long-term play. It's risky. It's going to be volatile. But if you can hang on to it for the next five years, I think cruises are still going to be a thing. So that's a story I can get behind is that people are going to continue to go on cruises. Aurora Cannabis, I don't know enough about it. Really with that company, I haven't researched it. I haven't looked into it. Not too interested in it. So I'm kind of neutral on this one. GoPro, I don't like. I don't understand what the appeal of that is. Delta Airlines and American Airlines pretty risky not ones i plan on holding but not the worst companies to hold disney i love ge and ford i don't really like so the top two are ones i'm not a fan of uh that's it i should if you're interested i could get a hold of m1 finance and ask them what their top 10 are and see if i could go over and review those as well so if you're interested in me doing the same thing with m1 finance users I think that might be a fun thing to do. Compare the top 10 most held stocks on Robinhood to the top 10 most held on M1 Finance and see the differences between the two. So uh, we might look at that sometime in the future. Okay, now let's get to some emails. Joseph at josephcarlsonshow.com. That is the email address. You can also message me on Instagram or Twitter. I have all the links in the description if you want to send me a message. You can ask me about anything. I'm going to go through a bunch of questions that I've received over just the past couple days. So This is one that I've had a couple people write in, so I'll go ahead and read this one from Reese. He says, Hi, Joseph. I'm a 24-year-old investor in the stock market. I watch a mix of channels, including yours, Financial Education, Graham Stephan, and Mad Money. Do you know why people with a platform or channel in the investing or personal finance realm don't talk about social issues or injustices going on in America? I have been impacted by the killing of George Floyd and other acts of police brutality, I don't know why it took me so long to realize and empathize with the acts of racism and injustices that have been going on for so long. I don't care if people disagree with the rioting and looting or police hating, but why is nobody speaking up on the pure evil act of police brutality and racism? As a young investor, I understand the importance of financial freedom and financial literacy, but I also feel the need to promote and donate to causes I believe in. It doesn't even have to be a racial or social issue. It could be donating to support COVID-19 efforts, food banks, etc. Why don't people with the financial education community speak up on these causes they believe in and promote ways to donate? Is it for fears of losing followers slash subscribers? I'm not asking for people to get political. Racism, pandemics, and natural disasters should have nothing to do with politics. Thank you, Reese. Well, Reese, this is obviously an interesting question. I've had a couple people ask about basically the same subject. Now, I can't speak for financial education and Graham Stephan. I'm not going to put words in their mouth, but I can share some thoughts on it. I think part of the issue is is that uh, you start your channels, like in my case, I started it where... It was about investing. It was about business. It was about a lot of advice that helps people get ahead financially. I've got myself in a pretty good financial position, and I'm simply trying to share what I know so that other people might be able to benefit from it. That's the basics of the channel. It does have some news. Sometimes politics does cross into the business world, and I'll give some input on that. But I grew the channel with most of my audience, I think, following me for my take and opinion on financially related news. So transferring over from finances and then giving my opinion and my take and you know what it should be on racial issues and discrimination it just puts you in the situation where it's like i'm gonna now tell my following how to fill on racial issues did they really care for my opinion on that is that why they subscribe to me is, is to get my opinion on how i feel on racial issues i don't think so i don't think that's why most people follow me because i really haven't talked about that at all so Uh, That's part of it. It's just difficult to do without sounding preachy. Like, I'm telling other people, this is how you should feel on this important, sensitive, social issue going on. So that's part of it. I think most of it is just not too related to the channel. On this issue, it's really easy to give my take on it. I assume most people know my thoughts on this subject already. In terms of police brutality and racism, I'm obviously 100% against that. So in case there was any confusion, any ambiguity, I'm 100% against any amounts of police brutality and racism. Uh, I did watch the George Floyd video of him being murdered by that cop, and I assume that my reaction watching it was the same as anybody else. It was a shocking, disturbing, just egregious video, infuriating watch. You see a cop show total indifference for human life. It was an incredibly horrifying thing to watch, so he should be charged and sentenced to the maximum extent the law allows and put in jail for as long as possible. There's my thoughts on the subject. And again, I assume most people feel the same way about it. And unfortunately, I'm aware of the realization that for some people, your skin color, your race does work as a disadvantage in some situations, which obviously should not be the case. We already have a lot of things that give us advantages and disadvantages. If you grow up in a good neighborhood, you have advantages. You know, if you have parents that teach you really good things, you have an advantage there. If you have good genetics and you don't have health problems, you have an advantage. If you have a lot of health problems growing up, That's a disadvantage. So we have all these things that we're already working with. Everybody's working with a different hand. They're dealt a different hand. We work with what we have, but race should not be one of them. That shouldn't be something that gives you a disadvantage in any situation. So I think that that's the case sometimes, and I don't know how to solve it, but uh, I'm trying to help in the way that I know how best, which is to help people from any ethnicity. A huge portion of this audience is minorities. I know that because I get... Emails and questions all the time on Instagram and Twitter from people that are minorities from all over the world, the Middle East and from the US, from Europe, everywhere. So, you know, we deal with a lot of people here uh, from all over the place and different backgrounds, and I'm trying to help people in the way that I know best, which is how to help people get ahead financially. So I think that's where I have the most value to offer to improve people's lives. And that's one thing I do like about the market. It doesn't care about what your background is, doesn't care about your ethnicity, doesn't have any role to play in it. If you buy a share of Apple, you're going to have the same returns as anybody else that bought a share for the same price. So that's what I'm going to try to do is help in the way that I think I can offer the most value. All right, moving on from that, shifting gears a little bit. Sam says, Hi, Joseph. Ozzy hair, big fan of the show. I understand you work in software development. I'm curious because you obviously seem interested in economics. So my question is, what made you pursue a career in software opposed to finance? Asking because I'm a recent graduate and I find myself currently deciding between the two careers. Well, it wasn't really a simple thing, Sam, deciding what I wanted to do for a career was actually kind of a long path, an expensive one, because I kept trying to change my major and my focus to different things. So I started off actually with finance, and I did like one semester with it, figured out that I wanted to just pursue some other things. I don't know if it's the introductory courses that you take, but it just didn't seem interesting at the time. So I ended up actually going into, I believe, Uh, Law was the next thing I was looking at. I looked at that for a while and decided it was not like the uh, dramatic court scenes that you see where people are arguing really interesting, thought-provoking issues. It was more just like a a lot of paperwork. So even though you make a lot of money, it's a lot of just the backroom, working in an office paperwork. And I decided I didn't really want to do that. So I switched to healthcare. My oldest brother was becoming a a doctor at the time. He was in schooling for a long time. I thought, maybe I can do that. And I don't want to do the full extent that he's doing it, where he's becoming a full uh, medical doctor, because I saw the path of that, and it's really not easy. I mean, it's really not easy. So uh, I thought, maybe I'll do something that's kind of an in-between and become a, a physical therapist. And I did some shadowing, talked to physical therapists, and I decided... I don't know if I have the patience for this. You really have to have a lot of patience and serve people in a completely different way than you do in like programming or even doing a YouTube thing. It's just a whole different way of serving people. I didn't know if I was really suited for it. So I decided against that. And the whole time I'm actually like going in and taking classes, uh, wasting money on them essentially, and then deciding to change out of them. So I've gone through a lot of classes and They're ones that I don't really have even part of what I actually ended up learning. From there, I decided to go into information systems, because at the time, I didn't think I would really want to do programming. I thought it would be too difficult to do at the time, and so I thought maybe information systems where you just learn about computers, that would be an interesting thing to do. And from there, I got into a programming class, because some of the classes you have to take just in an information system major was some coding classes, and it was really not difficult for me. So while all the other students were like failing out of the class at a really high failure rate, I was cruising through it pretty easy. So that's when I thought, maybe I can do this. And everybody I talked to said, if you can code, just do that. Don't worry about all this other stuff. Just learn to code, get good at that, and you can do that. So from there, I decided to switch my entire major, more focused on web development, go through the schooling and doing that, getting really excited about it, as well as I did free internships. So I went in and found really smart people that would allow me to learn from them for free. And really, like I said before, it was a situation where I was learning so much, I should have been paying them to be there. So I was learning a lot. And then, uh, like I talked about before, the first jobs that you take should be focused on getting the most education you can. Focus the jobs on getting the most education. So I don't really think this was a situation where I had finance and coding, and I decided I'm gonna learn coding. I'm gonna learn programming. It wasn't really like that. It was a series of events over the course of like a year or two where I really went through and looked at what I would be doing, talked with people in the field, everybody that I knew. I got advice and some people talked me out of different things doing it based off of what they said they do all day. I ended up landing on programming. I'm glad that I did. It turned out to be a pretty good career. I think that it still is. When I first started it, I quickly became kind of obsessed with it. I would do it for at least 10 hours a day. On the computer learning coding. So I would go to a job where I could learn on the job and then I would come home and work on things, my own projects late into the night. That was the routine for the first couple of years. I think you learn pretty fast spending that much time doing anything, but that's what I recommend. If you really want to learn something, jump in, do it yourself and really dive in deep. You learn whether you're really going to do it or not that way. Coding is something I don't think you can do real passively. I don't see a lot of successful people doing it if you spend an hour a day trying to learn it. It's really something I think you have to dive in deep if you want to learn it. Okay, Jeremy says, Hey Joseph, first off, I want to thank you for the incredible content that you provide. It's quickly become my favorite financial podcast that I listen to. I'll give you a little context for my question. I work as a designer. I've been self-employed for almost eight years now. Since then, I've managed to earn a high income for my field. I've averaged two hundred dollars to $300,000 per year for the last four to five years due to having multiple income streams, digital products, freelancing, and 50% owner on a popular website that earns from products and advertising. Well, Jeremy, you are killing it, man. 200 to $300,000 a year. That's pretty incredible. Uh, anyway, you say, and before that, I was earning over 100000 starting out simply freelancing. Guys, you should go into designing, not coding. Follow what Jeremy's doing and learn designing because... Uh, He's doing really well. Uh, During the first few years, I didn't really have much in the way of financial discipline. However, over the last four years, I've become much more interested in personal finance. I've managed to save and invest roughly $350,000. I also purchased an old home at a great price and fully renovated it at a great time because now the housing market where I live is booming and it's gone up in a value to roughly $350,000. I currently owe about $165,000 on the home, $900 per month. That is a really awesome situation. Nice low payment there. Uh, this gives my net worth approximately 500000 by 29. My question, I was wondering your thoughts on coasting financial independence. The idea that you work extremely hard to build as many income streams as possible in order to maximize savings and investments until you reach a certain point. Then you let your portfolio build in the background while you scale back your earning effort. It's not retirement, but you focus less on earning more money to invest and instead allow your 40s, 50s, and 60s to be a form of semi-retirement. Do you have any thoughts on this? Have you considered a dollar amount where you may enter semi-retirement and let your portfolio compound without any further additions? Or will you continue to earn and invest as much as possible until you plan to fully retire? Thanks, Jeremy. Well, Jeremy, first of all, congrats on the financial success. You're obviously doing really well. As far as your, your question on the coasting financial independence, I agree 100%. It's something I I don't see many people, almost nobody that I talk to says, I don't want to work. I don't want to do anything productive. Nothing that could make money. I just want to have passive income so that I can do nothing. That's not many people. I've never heard actually anybody say that to me. Most people say, I want to be able to work, but I don't want to feel completely pressured and tied to my job. I don't want to be living paycheck to paycheck. I want to have some leeway. I want to be able to have some flexibility. I don't want to have financial Anxieties because I am in a difficult financial situation. Most people like being productive, they like working. So, even if you're financially independent, most likely you're still going to work. Look at most people that create things and work to begin with. You look at uh, any really wealthy person, Warren Buffett, you know, he's like 90 years old and he's still working, he's still the CEO of his company. Jeff Bezos, why isn't he retired? He's still working, he created a a big company. He's worth a lot of money. Generally speaking, people enjoy working. If you work to the point where you're financially independent, you're the type of person that likes being productive. And that's probably not going to change. So once you do reach the point where you're financially independent, you're going to realize that the reward is building up the financial independence, not just having the money, but creating it, generating it, sharing it with other people, being able to serve other people with it, I think that's what most people are going to find. So absolutely, if I could be at a point in my 40s, 50s and 60s where I could be semi-retired and I'm 50% financially independent, I think I'm a lot better off. The worst situation to be in is where you're tied to a job because you have no other choice. That's a highly stressful situation to be in, you know, nobody wants to be in that situation. So this is a way to get you out of that. Even if you get 40 or 50% of the way there, that drastically will reduce the amount of stress you have. So Um, I'm a hundred percent with you on that. Okay. And with that question, I'm going to end this episode there. If you haven't already hit the subscribe button, that's a free way to help out the channel. And I will talk to you guys next time.